Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to this edition of Planet Pod, coming to you from the last day of COP26, brought to you in partnership with the COP26 Universities Network and the University of Strathclyde. I'm Amanda Carpenter and I'm delighted, we've bookended this series and I'm delighted to be joined today by my co-host Chris White, who hasn't actually managed to make one of the others because he's been so busy being at COP. Hello, Chris. Hello, Amanda. Um, it's, it's nice to come back. Um, it, it's been a, a crazy couple of weeks, hasn't it? And um, I think this is only my second of, of the series, but I've been here um, all, all the way through. And of course, I've been listening to, to all the podcasts as, as we've been going. Yeah. And and, and nabbing random guests as, in, as you go past. And it's thanks to you with a bit of nabbing that we've managed to persuade Chris Stark, who's the chief executive of the Committee on Climate Change, to join us today live from COP and in a booth somewhere in the building. Hello, Chris. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to Glasgow. <laughs> so I think obvious question, uh, Chris, is I have to ask you, how's it been over the last two weeks, apart from exhausting for you? I mean, it's been exhausting, but it feels like it's worth an exhaustion. Um, uh, it's been very strange for me because I live in this city, although I, my job is really usually focused on London um, and Westminster and occasionally on Holyrood very occasionally in Cardiff. But um, it's, it's been nice to have 40,000 people come to visit me in my in my hometown, um, in every in every meaning of the word, on my patch. <laughs> so um, I've enjoyed it. I've, I, it's been really good. I think Glasgow's done well to host it. Um, uh, I think it will be good for the city. Uh, I mean, I hope that the thing at the end of this is something that can be associated with some real progress on climate and forever associated with Glasgow. So it, it, I mean, I, I, it's been great. I'm not sure I'd want to do it every year, but um, as we come to the end of this, I, I, I'm thinking fondly of it. Well, that's good to hear because it, it did come in for a bit of bashing at the beginning, didn't it? And there was a lot of criticism about, you know, the arrangements and the whole COP process and whether it would be a disaster. And and I think initially people were possibly less engaged because the messages I was hearing, certainly when I talked to people in the street and young people at the universities were don't come into the city, don't get involved. But that definitely shifted as the week went on, didn't it? And there was a definite feeling of energy and vibrancy, I think. And hats off to, to Glasgow because, you know, the electric buses and the people in the street to where to go and the help when you got onto the station at Edinburgh, all of the kind of mechanics were really, really good once you got through those first couple of days of queuing outside the blue zone, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And I think the first two days were a scrum because... We had, you know, I don't know how many world leaders came in the end, but something, you know, something approaching 100. And um, uh, understandably, there was a lot of people wanted to be in at a particular time in the morning. And actually, over the, after those first two days of problems, I've been, I've more or less walked in uh, without queuing at all. So I, I'm, I'm, I think that's right, because actually the first two days are, are, are kind of pantomime, really. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the days after that that matter. And um, if you need to be in the COP and if you need to get there to do your work, then I think everyone has found that uh, process to work pretty well. Yeah. And they've all been eating haggis, which is the other thing that's kind of interesting. Watching them and drinking eat. Iron Brew. Drinking <laughs> Iron Brew, yeah. So you've got kind of prominent American politicians wandering around yes. wondering why what this drink is. And I, I should tell you a story about Iron Brew. So I met, I met an American who'd never had it before. And I was regaling her with the with, with the true story, of course, if you live in Glasgow, is that the, the iron brew that we are drinking now is not the real iron brew. Uh, it's because it's had all the sugar removed from it. So the uh, the original, you can get the original uh, ingredient version 
uh, they call it the 1901 version, um, in a glass bottle. And as anyone from Glasgow will know, that's the only way to drink uh, Iron Brew. Anyway, I was regaling her with this story. And she said to me, it tastes like bubble gum. And I thought, does it? Uh, of course, because I because I grew up in Glasgow, you never question what Iron Brew tastes like. It's 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 um and it does. I think I've been I've been reappraising the taste of Iron Brew, and I think it is a bubblegum taste. So there you are. I've had my eyes opened by this cop in many ways, but um I've uh, reappraised my national drink. And that's probably why it appeals to the Americans. The yeah, I think they like it. <laughs> <laughs> they like the sugar. But on to serious matters. I mean, can I just ask you? Can you maybe give us a sense of? of where you think some of the successes over the last two weeks have come from and what they might indicate for, for moving forward. We can talk about where the gaps are in a minute, but where are the where are standout successes of, of the COP process in terms of, of negotiations and agreements? Well, the biggest success is that uh, the risk of it being a failure has been avoided, I think, if I can put it that. So that's a very negative framing. But I had lots of worries coming into this about vaccines, access, post-pandemic. And um, I think we've we've stepped around that. There's been a lot of goodwill um, in the negotiations. So I, I, I would cite that first because it, it surprised me. Um, the second success, and I think this is more of a, 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 a debatable point, is that we have now got a path to something beneath two degrees centigrade albeit we, hadn't, we haven't got the cast iron commitments in the NDCs, the 2030 targets that would deliver that. But we've never had that before. So uh, for me, that means that there is a story coming out of this. I mean, we haven't completed the COP yet, so it could yet unravel. But um, there is a story about um, uh, you know, a, a path to a, low, a lower than two temperature uh, outcome, uh, being alive or uh, you know, in the game, as long as we do something over the course of this decade. And I think if we get some text at the end of this that, that, that dials up the urgency of acting in this decade, it looks like that's the way it's heading. And I do regard that as a diplomatic success. Um, it was never going to be the COP that solved climate change, sadly, but I think it will have progressed it. And I, 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 it feels to me, and this is another sort of general point really, I feel like it's a tipping point. Um, one of the reasons I say that is because Lots of the NGOs have been slightly sniffy about it being quite a corporate cop. Mm. Um, but I, I, the reason it's corporate is because they are here and they, they are interested in it for the first time. It's not, it, and I'm sure greenwashing is going on, but there are a lot of big corporates and financiers who are here in the cop discussing things that they actually want to do for the first time. And um, I, I may regret saying this, but I think I think it is true. This is the first COP where I feel that commerce and finance is now ahead of most world leaders. Mm. And in due course, that will give world leaders more confidence to go faster on this. And the reason for that is, and we could talk about that you know, for, for hours, but that one of the reasons is that the alternatives to fossil fuels, especially in the power system, are now so much cheaper. Yeah. And um, you couple that with the positive story and other technologies like batteries, for example, there is now a meaningful way forward on, on cutting emissions. So I think that this may well come to be the COP that was associated with that with that moment. It's not fast enough, you know. I'm, I'm, I of course would like to see more from it, but um, I think that that's that that's that's a new thing for me in this COP. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because it feels to me as if there's a kind of bookending going on in that sense, or a pincer movement. You've got the engagement from big business 
and from 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 investment and from financiers and you've got the the pressure from the streets from young people and from you know very vocal indigenous communities and if you like they're ahead of the politicians in the middle they're bound to be aren't they because the politicians in the middle of uh uh, ring fence around diplomacy and they've got other issues to deal with but those mm. two those two those two groups are kind of a little bit ahead and they're pushing pushing and pushing and pushing that's right the center the, i the think that so the other way i might frame it and i my colleague said this to me this is the cop we should have had 20 years ago um uh, and if we'd had that cop 20 years ago we'd be in a much better position obviously today but i'm afraid you can't just wish that so it, it this is the moment when as you say the the, the civil pressure to act on climate change, plus the corporate interest in it has come together in a way that has, as you say, squeezed world leaders. Uh, I think they, in, it, it, there are all the all the ingredients are there now for us to do much faster on this transition after Glasgow. Uh, and I hope that the final text, the cover text, as it's known, the Glasgow Declaration, I think is probably what we'll end up calling it, will we'll, we'll create a space for that to happen uh, after Glasgow. And, and in due course, I hope they, therefore we reflect on it as a, as a moment um, uh, of real progress. Chris, I guess to follow on a little bit from that, you and the work that the uh, the CCC does often, and rightly so, champions, I suppose, the, the need for local action. So bringing in very much us and everyone else around us as, as being part of the solution, part of the, the, the future. COP26, of course, is very much about national levels, about um, agreements between countries. Do you think that that local voice, that driver, as you were just describing there, as well as with big, big business, do you think it's had an equal voice? Do you think it has actually made a difference? Do you think there's still somewhat of a disconnect between an us and them? I think there's a, a big disconnect. I mean, I, this has been the COP that where corporate interests have been better aligned with what we need to achieve on climate, but, but it has also been a, a COP that has felt disconnected from the needs of the people who will actually be affected by this transition? I get one of the one of the remarkable things about this, especially when you live in Glasgow, is that you find all these venues around the city that you know to be something else have been commandeered to be, uh, you know, a kind of cop venue. One of them is a nightclub in Glasgow called SWG3. Mm, um, which, I've been there. Which, it's great. <laughs> which it's a fantastic arts venue as well as a nightclub, and it used to it used to be a warehouse. It used to be a galvanizer's yard. I remember. Um, New York Times are there. And they've turned it into this just amazing thing. It's quite amazing when you go down there. It's um, it's like this kind of strangest kind of private members club, as best way I can describe it for, <laughs> for uh, for New York Times readers. One, it's a huge space where they have these big raves and um, in SWG three has been turned into what I can only describe as a forest, yeah. uh, with lots of actual trees and um, uh, you know, and actually the noises of a forest in there as well. And, and with it, there's lots of flies as well. I noticed, but um, I did a debate there. Um, for the New York Times, and um, it was really good to do it. It was it was a fascinating debate because it was the topic of it was um, are democracies better at handling the climate crisis than authoritarian states? Um, and I was on the democracy and I lost. <laughs> but um, uh, my argument there was three of us on the on the um, on the democracy side. My argument was that we do need democracy to handle this thing because democratic structures give you the possibility of legitimizing societal shifts that we need, that, that, you, that you can give a voice and you can give agency to, to various sections of the society. And I, I closed with um, uh, a phrase which comes from South Africa, but is not now kind of very commonly heard in these parts in Glasgow, that nothing about us without us is for us. 
um, and that democracy gives you that kind of opportunity for representation. And I think that I, I absolutely believe that because I think the, the, the condition of success in achieving carbon neutrality has got to be that, that it's not just that it's all top down, it's got to be bottom up as well. You've got to have people actually expressing a view on how to how to achieve all of this. And this this has not been a COP where you've heard enough of that, I think. Um, it is a top down COP. They often are. Um, but I think it would be nice if future COPs, you know, embrace that bottom up stuff a, a bit more. Do, do you think then that, I guess with that uh, that most recent knowledge, you know, the, the experience, I suppose, that you've just had in describing there, do you, do you think that will in some way change the work that you do or the approach to the work that you do through the CCC? You do a lot with uh, citizen assemblies. Um, and I've, we've seen that in, in action and, and they're fantastic. But do you, has it made you think or past, given with a bit of time after COP, do you think it will give you... Uh, some ideas about different approaches uh, that you can build on post-COP. Yeah, I do. So it's not just the COP. I've been thinking that way for the last couple of years, actually. So we, we've been doing, we ourselves have been doing a lot of top-down planning for decarbonisation in the UK, which is, which is kind of what's required of, of us in the Climate Change Act, really. We're, we're sort of required to look at decarbonising a whole economy uh, and we, we do that, I think, in a really sophisticated, integrated way. We think about all the steps that can be made, but we tend to think about them as, as sectoral strategies. And it, and it sort of leads you to that top-down outlook on it. More and more, I think that we're kind of done with that. Uh, and that, you know, that what we've established is a meaningful set of options for decarbonising the whole economy. And um, we need to make some choices now. And actually, my interest has moved on to thinking much more about the fairness of this transition. I don't like the term just transition very much, if I'm honest, that, that term, because it, it, it's quite a value-laden thing to say just. Um, fairness is a, is a term that means something to me. And I think it, in if, kind of every aspect of this transition, it's fairness to me that looks like the biggest um, challenge for policy and for policymakers and also for, you know, in general society. So... I'm more and more interested in that, but the constraints of the Climate Change Act mean that we need to think about this in policy terms. So for us in the CCC, in advising on, on climate policies, I think the thing we will move more towards is, is advising on how you achieve a, a fair outcome or a balanced outcome here. Now, that's, again, quite a challenge for us, but I'm quite excited about that because I suspect that the answer to making these policies stick and endure is to, is to is to have a stronger focus on on fairness and, and fairness i think plays into the local debate a bit too doesn't it i mean a lot of you know i was sitting in a debate about how you you know decarbonize transport for example and the need to to create better public transport which of course needs investment but there were conversations there about fairness and access and um the fact that actually running a you know a, a, a petrol car is actually going to, you know, it disproportionately penalizes people who are, um, you know, you know, who are in lower incomes because they often run a car because they have to for work because they can't get public transport and yet they can't afford to heat their homes. So, so I think it's about shifting that balance, isn't it? And if you say, if we talk about fairness, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful way of approaching it, Chris, we can start to include people in communities because some of these solutions have to act be enacted at community level don't they and we do need good policies we do need good governance we do need top-down drivers but we also need community and local engagement to make it work well i think that's right i mean I, there's all sorts of ways to look at the the, um, the the fairness issues but one way to look at it is that we've got a set of distributional challenges uh in decarbonizing the economy by the way 
we haven't talked at all yet about adaptation, which presents an even bigger set of fairness challenges, I would say, um, mm -hmm. globally and within the UK and Scotland for that matter. But um, uh, but but just to stick with decarbonisation, that, that I occasionally think of it in three ways. You've got these three distributional challenges. The first of them is the one that the Treasury typically thinks about, which is the, 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 the fairness across the income distribution. You know, can I afford that Tesla, mm. um, for example? So that's one aspect of it. Um, there's also fairness in the sort of regional sense. So you know, you know, how do we achieve it? One of the interesting things with fossil fuels is that it, fossil fuel industries tend to have quite highly concentrated employment around them. So you've got quite a regional imbalance, actually, as you go through this transition. And then the last one is the one I think we've been best at in the CCC exploring, which is the sectoral distributional challenge. And, and that one is fascinating because what we see in this transition now is that the, the costs of it um, are, are actually concentrated in a couple of areas, but we've got savings in other sectors. So the classic way of looking at this is that you've got savings in energy now in decarbonizing, um, thanks to the fact that the power coming out of renewable uh, and offshore wind uh, is now cheaper and cheaper over time. You've got saving, big savings in transport in decarbonizing, thanks to the fact that electric cars are cheaper to produce now, uh, you know, they're the, the, the cheaper to run um, uh, and they tend to break down less. And the power for them is that renewable power I talked about. But you've got big costs in buildings and industry. Mm. Um, now, fairness across the, all, all those, those sectors means that, that there's a job, especially for the Chancellor, I think, to, uh, to spread not just the costs, but the benefits as well. So that's a fascinating challenge. What kind of policies would do that? So I, for me, this is one of the areas that the CCC needs to move into, actually, is this distributional challenge. That, how, how do we frame up policies that achieve you know, the fair outcome that we would like to see, but crucially also protect those people, I don't want to say consumers or citizens, but people who are least able to pay for this. And I, the crucial thing is I think you can do that. And I also think there's a space for us to advise on those kind of policies, um, be they tax policies or you know, regulatory policies or whatever it is. I think that one of the things I'm really interested in doing is getting more into that, that, that uh, policy advice. Um Chris, you, you mentioned quite rightly there just a minute ago the adaptation and the climate resilience piece, which um, I guess that's, that's the part that's closest to, to, to my heart or my area of interest. And, and, I, and I guess my question within here is specific to the advice you give to the CCRA3, the Climate Change Risk Assessment, the third one for the UK government. Do you feel that COP has... Uh, put that on an equal agenda um, as our drive for net zero and, and the agreements around decarbonisation, or do you still feel like it's the um, the poor relation of this um, uh, conversation of, of, of mm. the, the bigger piece? Well, every COP um, and every COP presidency has to decide what their priorities are. And it's very clear, you can see that in the draft text that we have at 11 o'clock on Friday morning, that the the... UK focus in hosting this and in steering the, now remember it's a UN process the UK don't get the right to decide everything but clearly they, they add their their um their their um influence the UK cop has been more focused on mitigation so you can see that in the detail that that is um that is in that text and I think it's right and proper that they should have that outlook um but I do think that adaptation is still uh is still some way behind in the priority list the next COP, I am absolutely certain, will not be like that. So, uh, and this is kind of interesting to me. That's that kind of that's really how how these revolving 
uh, cops moving between the various blocks under the UN should work, I think. So I expect that the next COP will look at adaptation uh, more, more, more um, in more detail, and they will also look at loss and damage. One of my disappointments is that we've connected loss and damage with adaptation, which is an unnecessary thing to have done. I think we had a day of adaptation and loss and damage at COP26. But, um, but I am certain that the next COP, which is Egypt and therefore Africa-led, will be more interested in in those topics as they should be. I'm also sure that China will be more interested in adaptation than you might expect. Mm. And, um, you know, I think this is an interesting thing for me is can we move from COP26 being rightly focused on mitigation challenges to to, to opening up what I think we need to have as a more rich discussion about adaptation as a a more positive thing? I think this is that I would love to see in this country, for example, a a, a framing of adaptation, a well-adapted, a well-adapted uh, net-zero society is a good outcome for the UK to try and reach. But we don't talk in those terms about adaptation. So I think there's a lot to do still in adaptation. I, 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 I think you're right because a lot of our messaging, a lot of the reports, a lot of the, the work that does is still relatively siloed. It is it's either in the net-zero decarbonisation climate mitigation camp or it's in the climate resilience or adaptation. They're still seen as relatively separate. Um, uh, pieces of work or or, or sectors to, to some degree. So, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of share your your hope, perhaps that that these will come closer together as we go through. Um, yeah, one of the, we, we've we've had a bit of success. So we did the third climate change risk assessment as we as we do every five years. We did that this year. One of the unhappy features of my job is that we have these two five we have five yearly processes on mitigation and adaptation and they're both within six months of each other which is a real failure of the drafting of the climate change act because we're all knackered but um the climate change risk assessment is this thing we do every five years and we've highlighted a whole set of risks and one of the things i was keen to try and do was to raise um the profile of the risk assessment this year and to make it more meaningful to policymakers i don't you can tell me whether you think we've been successful in that or not but I feel I've had more success by linking net zero and adaptation together for the first time. And especially about talking, for example, about what you need to do in the natural world. The fact mm. that you can't just plant a few trees. If, you know, if, there's, if there's going to be a drought in the future, those trees won't grow. The fact that you need to have, yes, a net zero power system that is going to be very largely based on offshore wind, for example. But therefore, you've got to think also about what kind of climate you'll have so that you are, have a resilient power system in that, in that kind of warming climate where we achieve net zero. So uh, that has raised the interest of policymakers, which is quite a useful thing. I'm going to try and do more of that. There's obviously links in housing as well that we could bring in policy terms. There's all sorts of areas where you can draw together net zero and adaptation. But in the end, they are quite different disciplines. So you know, we are going to have to find a, a way into raising the uh, awareness of, I think it is awareness, actually, the, the awareness of, of adaptation among policymakers and I suspect the answer to that is to is to find ways of framing it up more constructively than we have in the past. So I feel I'm on a journey in that myself. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd, I can probably mirror those thoughts from someone that's an academic that does research at a university and in the adaptation space. Everything that I do pretty much now is is wrapped up or framed, to use the, the word you just did there, is framed in the net zero decarbonisation piece. Five years ago, even less probably, it wasn't. I was squarely discussing things simply in the terms of changing climate, the impacts of climate, and what we need to do to um, ad- adapt to it. Now it's it, it's all framed around that. So I think the universities and the research that's come out of universities 
in part, not wholly, of course, but in part, I think, have a key role to play in bringing those disciplines, as you say, um, together a little bit. Mm, I agree. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm kind of open to ideas how to do that, really. I'm, I'm absolutely sure, though, we have to move away from adaptation being a kind of miserable discussion. Not that, not to suggest agree. That, that you've made it miserable, but uh, but <laughs> we succeeded on net zero to, to turn it into positive discussion. And I think we can do the same in adaptation, but it's going to require a bit of thought. I don't know. I, I often find that when when I'm talking, I, I'm the, the bringer of misery, uh, and and <laughs> I, I, I need to find a better way to put a more positive spin on on some some of the work that that we do. But um, yeah, hopefully not. not yeah, I, I mean, I think it's interesting, Chris, because you talked about the this being a cop way. We've got business engagement, and and you know, from from my perspective businesses are talking about net zero now in a way that they didn't even 18 months ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so they've grasped it and they've got it and I'm not sure that they fully understand it. Do any of us fully understand it? And I'm certain that they are not necessarily enacting all the things they need to genuinely transition to a net zero way of working, but they're on the journey and they're having the conversation and that has to be a good thing. Um, so I wonder if there's a role there for actually explaining a little bit more about adaptation to that community as as well so they really understand what they what we mean and because i certainly think they get the, the most of the corporates that, that i work with and talk to or most of the organizations that you know at the sharp end are hugely interested in the whole biodiversity conversation as well i mean they want mm. to talk about that they probably because they want to try and solve consciences can i say around offsetting with you know nature-based solutions but 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 beyond that i think they do understand so perhaps again they can be our unlikely friends in helping to get this conversation to a wider community in a, in a, in a more proactive way. I think that's, that is almost certainly true. Um, and um, uh, one of the interesting dynamics of this COP has been the discussion on finance. And I, it's, I'm afraid that in future COPs, we're going to have to disaggregate what we mean by finance. It's been yeah. really obvious in this COP that we're talking about all sorts of different things at cross purposes when we say the word finance. Yeah. Mostly this hundred billion dollars that we've been talking about is about funding, actually. So I would much prefer to refer refer yeah. to it in those terms. So funding for those nation states that are uh, uh suffering the impacts of you know hundreds, hundred, hundred and fifty years of fossil fuel use in the West. But um the other the more interesting discussion for me at least at the moment is the financing discussion about um moving finance to the right priorities. And by that I mean private finance. Yeah. And that needs to not just focus on net zero. It's also got to deal with adaptation. And one of the ways into that is, and this is, I think, a really good bit of progress that's been made in the last couple of years, is to is to get better at disclosing the risks that um, uh, that are faced from climate change. And I, I think this will be the COP that sort of cemented that. Although I think we had an overblown set of claims on on finance this in this COP. Yes, the underlying trillions. the under the one hundred and thirty trillion squillion dollars, whatever it was that Mark Carney came up with. <laughs> <laughs> my mortgage is in that number. I'm fairly sure my mortgage is not is not uh, actively tackling the climate crisis. But the um, but um, uh, you know the idea of better disclosure around the climate risks, leading to better financing of the priorities, is got to be right. And I think the UK obviously has a role to lead on that, given the given the, yeah. you know, the international yeah. centre in the city. So that I think in due course will be viewed as a, a, another one of these moments. And you're absolutely right about um, separating finance from from funding. And I have to say, a lot of the uh, small island states and those who are, you know, really suffering on the front line of climate change see the funding not as funding, but as reparations almost, don't they? Yeah. 
in terms that of that word's been um, used actually yeah. uh, so it, it used to be omerta out. at a cop but it, it's yes. obviously not anymore so yeah that's, so, that's, so we do need to separate those and obviously some mm. question i really want to ask which is just on on pretty much the last thing you were, you were saying there chris is around how is how's the uk's approach to in the lead up to cop and i'm thinking actually specifically with to do with the the work that the climate change committee has done how does that stack up do you think with other countries and whether you can say that's as other let's say western countries versus um uh, more globally but i feel we're quite we're, we're very lucky that we've got an organization like the climate change committee and the work that's been done in the carbon budget this the climate change risk assessment other countries won't have that no. benefit of depth of knowledge and understanding and really pushing forward do, do, you, do you think that's in part helping with the disconnect that we, we've been describing uh, and really again the question I guess is how does that stack up with other countries do you think well I mean I, I don't wish to be accused of UK exceptionalism so, I, so please take it in, in that spirit but we clearly have a a model that works in the UK I think anyway um, where you've got this independent body sort of preparing the ground for what needs to actually be done in policy terms. Also, I mean, we do a job of advising on the targets. We do the job of also advising on progress. Now, other countries, some of them have adopted that model. Um, I'm not aware there's any single country that has kind of taken it on wholesale, but I, I mean, it clearly works in the UK. And I think one, I've, been, one, I've been saying this to quite a few people over the course of this COP because we've... Um, We've brought together a network of similar bodies around the world. There's about 30 of them, we think now, who are all doing similar things to us. All of the models are different. Um, but one of the things I've been saying to them, because a lot of them are a lot younger than us, I think we are the oldest, actually, of the of the climate advisory bodies that there are in, in law, at least, um, is that it's good to have a CCC because what we're effectively doing is 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 creating the space for difficult decisions. So if we haven't said it first, there's no space for a government, no minister can move into that space. So if you want to, in this country, it's always the, sort of the, big, the big topic on the front page of every tabloid is banning banning gas boilers. <laughs> so in this country, we all love our gas boilers so much and we go sort of hug them before we go to bed at night. But um, the, um, the, we need to say that before any minister can get close to making a decision like that. So it's, it's also good because the minister can blame us for having said it. You know that that, that it's, it, we play a really important role in uh, just kind of playing that kind of independent technical body that says those things. I think it's difficult for countries that don't have it, and you will not. I mean, this may surprise you, but I have some sympathy for Scott Morrison in the in Australia at the moment because he is nothing like this and is trying to satisfy all sorts of different people uh, and failing, I would say, um, in in making some sort of climate statement. It would work much better in Australia, which after all has a similar system of law to the UK. It would be much, much better if there was a CCC in Australia that had spelled out the kind of demands of, of the transition for, for Australia. So I think that's, that is something that other countries could do with replicating. I would say that, wouldn't I? But yeah. the interesting thing for me is we've also learned that I don't know, I think there are some deficiencies in the UK model as well, notably the representation of people. So... Um, uh, we met the uh, South African brand new presidential commission, which is doing a similar job to us. They are not a technical body. They've been, they've been set up. It's quite a South African thing when you think about the history of that country, but they've been set up to um, have broad representation of, of society uh, on the needs of this transition. Uh, tra uh, this transition. So 
I kind of, I felt very much that we could learn a bit from that. Actually, that there was something for the UK to take away from that to to to, to augment the very good technical work that we that we that we do. I think so. That's been great, actually. Yeah, that almost brings us full circle, Chris, really, doesn't it? Because again, that 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 brings us back to that theme of fairness, really, and engagement and representation that we kind of started this conversation with. Um, because you know, obviously, you know, having more people engaged in this conversation can only be good at whatever level we do that, whether they're formally on bodies like yours or if they're in more informally in communities. So, uh, so, mm. so, um, um, we really should draw it to a close. But, 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 can I can I ask you to to say? Do you what what will you be your kind of top things that you'll be doing in the next six months as a result of COP, if that's a fair question? I mean, what are the things that you that you feel in your role at the CCC and that you perhaps think others should be doing in response to where we got to in this process? Well, we're gonna do in the next week week or so a, a stock take on the COP. And in that, I think we'll try and reflect a bit on the progress that's been made. Um and it's worth saying that. I think a lot of the commentary, I'm sure, at the end of this weekend will be about what's been achieved in the last two weeks. But I think it's worth stepping back still further and looking at where we are over the last two years. And yeah. there's an enormous amount of progress, notably the long-term targets to cut emissions, which you know we could debate whether they are as strong as they need to be. But I think it has got to be progress to have 90% of the world's economy under a net zero target. And I mean, that's pretty amazing. But we'll, we want to do a bit of that sort of slightly longer-term outlook. But but to, to answer your question, one of the things I really want to do is to try and un, try and give some advice. Given that we are a UK body, uh, you know, we have we do we are required to think about international circumstances. But our advice is for the UK. We are actually just starting the presidency of the COP. Um, it's an important thing to say that it begins at COP twenty six, so we'll have it for twelve months. So I'm quite keen to try and say a bit more about what we expect of the UK presidency um, over the next twelve months. So that's one thing. And then getting back to what we do here, we're going to do some work on oil and gas, which will be, I'm sure, controversial, but drawing on the uh, analysis and uh, advice of the International Energy Agency, mm-hmm. who looked at a pathway to one and a half degrees. We will want to consider what implications that has for new oil and gas licensing um, in the UK. So I'm sure that will be um, a controversial thing. And then two more things. Um one is this, this point about fairness and representation in the transition. We're going to do some work on, 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 on workers and skills. We're going to do begin some work on some of those distributional impacts that I talked about. And then the last thing, which is getting on to maybe a kind of nice way to round off this discussion, is that the challenge is moving on from setting ambitions into delivering them. Uh, it's an easy thing for me to say that. But in the UK, I really feel that that is where we are now. Mm. So... It's less about finding gaps in policy. There are still lots of gaps in policy, but there are not many of them now at UK level or Scottish level, which is, um, as I speak to you from Scotland today. Um, uh, That's progress, but delivering is interesting. What does that actually mean? It's not really now about the government setting, you know, policy ambitions. It's actually about delivering against that. Now, interestingly, the UK government has probably got the bit, the kind of most well-expressed strategy, I think, about how they want to achieve carbon neutrality. And it's basically to point to business and say, it's your job, which is a perfectly valid outlook. Um, uh, I suspect if it was a Labour administration in Westminster, they might do more public spending, but it's quite interesting. We've got a government that's saying something that I kind of believe, I suppose. Now, if it's the responsibility of commerce to deliver all of this, um, and if it's the responsibility of commerce to bring down the price for 
the consumer for all these various things that we need, then I think it falls to us to actually monitor that. So we want to be more into, uh, we want to kind of get into the, the tools. I'm quite keen on building some sort of dashboard of progress that gets beneath the policy level into what's happening in the real world. And not just how many electric vehicles are being sold in the, in, in the country in any one year, but actually where, are the, where is the finance going, for example? Can we actually spot the trends? Can we say with confidence that things are moving in the, in the, in the direction they need to, at the speed they need to? So this is a big challenge for us, I think. So we'll begin that this year. I don't think we'll resolve it, but every June we do a progress report to the Westminster Parliament, which is a, a kind of big milestone for us. So in the first of uh, in, in June, when we do our um, first progress report after COP, I think you'll see the first of these um, of a new approach from the CCC to looking at these real world issues. And that's true for mitigation. It's also true for adaptation. So we want to get into real world metrics of progress more, which in the end is what matters. So I think that's quite exciting, actually, to think that way. Um, so I hope you agree. Hugely exciting. And um, if we may, perhaps we could have you back in June. <laughs> so do of that. Course. <laughs> take, take, take the temperature of how far we've got. Um, well, they might have sacked me by then, so that's always the risk. <laughs> I doubt it. Well, you know, I mean, well, you could always go to Australia, of course, Chris, if they do that. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm certain they would not want me in Australia, but um, well, one so day much. perhaps. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking time out, and I know how incredibly busy COP is for for everybody, but it's particularly for you. And we're we're very grateful. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much, um, Chris. Great way to end our series for the um, COP26 Universities Network with the support it, of the University of Strathclyde. Yeah, it's, it, yeah. thank you, Amanda, and thank you, Chris. Uh, it, it's, yeah, it's been a perfect way to, to wrap up what's been a, um, a busy but a fantastic couple of weeks. And yeah, thank, thank you, Chris, for, for being uh, our, our last guest on this. Thanks very much for having me. I've enjoyed it. It's been great to talk to you. Um, a thank you to, um, to the University of Strathclyde for hosting and supporting us during this series and to the COP26 Universities Network and all of the guests from across the network from the academics and researchers and, and sorry to all of those who we didn't manage to include. There are a lot of you, but there are more programmes to come in the future. Um, I must say thank you to Jim, who's just been extraordinary in producing and editing these programmes over the last fortnight and to Beth, who's worked so hard to make them happen. And my thanks to Grantham as well. So thank you, Chris and Chris. Um, and thanks to our listeners and thanks for listening to Planet Pod and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.